Well, Joel, I think being in the podcast business is a lot easier than being in the AM radio business, clearly, because uh, down in Jasper, Alabama, uh, the station was alarmed by some guys taking care of the grounds. They had come out to, to mow and weed whack and whatever they're going to do and at the tower site. And when they got there, there was no tower. The tower was gone. All was left was a bunch of cables on the ground. And so the tower evidently was stolen. And the, the station manager at, at, down there in Alabama uh, doesn't have any leads. They can't figure out where this, where this, all the equipment went to. And it wasn't like it was a little tiny 20-foot tower. It's like a 200-foot tower. So talking about taking down a really big structure and somehow dragging it off into the woods uh, and never to be found again. So th there's a that's a big problem. If the people are starting to steal your radio tower, you got issues. I just can't see what anybody would do with it. I mean, you're not going to cut it up and sell it for scrap. Like every, this is national news now. Every scrapyard is going to know. Uh, first off, look, okay, well, so what are you going to do with it is one. If, and, if you, and if you reinstall it, like, hey, we're going to install it so we can get TV from freaking Germany. I don't know. But if you're going to reinstall it, someone's going to see it. They're going to be like, there's that 200 foot tower. <laughs> so I don't know, unless it's just a really extravagant prank that someone's pulling, I'm not sure what you're going to do with this tower, but, uh, kudos to the people that pulled it down. I don't know how you did that overnight. Well, they don't have any insurance coverage because who would steal a tower, right? So now the station's in, tr in trouble because the FCC uh, which license all the radio stations in, in the United States, uh, has pulled their license. So they had an FM station and an AM station. The AM station got stolen. The FM station evidently is still operational, but the FCC told them to turn it off. So now they're stuck. <laughs> they got to go buy a new tower. Those things are not cheap, by the way. So th that's, a, that's a big problem. And it just reminds me when you and I were bent down in Oklahoma and Texas that a, a lot of wind turbines now, thank goodness, are well locked up because... There's a lot of vandals out there, and some of these wind turbines are located in remote places uh, that we make sure that all those things are closed and, and secure like we, we hope that they are because there's a lot of crazy stuff going on right now. So uh, one last question, Alan. At what point in time do we just get rid of AM radio? As soon as podcasts take over the world, that's when. Or when you can listen to it on a podcast on your AM radio, that's when you can do it. That's our next frontier, back to AM. Back to AM, amen. Well, Joel, Eversource is pulling out of the offshore wind business here in the United States. Now, Eversource is a large electricity provider on the East Coast. Uh, they operate New England's largest energy system with about 4.4 million electric natural gas and water customers in sort of Connecticut, Massachusetts, and up in New Hampshire. So they cover Hartford, Connecticut, and Boston, Massachusetts, two big metro areas uh, because they, they published their financials for 2023, and they had booked a $1.9 billion impairment for its offshore wind investments for last year. And evidently, as part of that, they decided to sell their 50% stake in South Fork Wind and Revolution Wind projects to global infrastructure partners. Now, in return for selling those, they're going to receive about $1.1 billion in cash, but that's not going to close until like middle of this year. 
And it sounds like there's a little bit of contingencies in place just in case some cost overruns uh, happen, That how they're going to split those up. But essentially, Eversource is getting out of the offshore wind business. This is a big deal because now Global Infrastructure Partners, which just got acquired by BlackRock, right? That uh, there's a lot of financial transactions happening at the moment. Yeah, the interesting thing here, and you and I kind of talked about it off air, you know, if you're in the wind industry or in the, the you know these some of these players, you know Orsted, you know Iberdrola, you know NextEra, you know some of these larger ones. But when people said Eversource originally, like Eversource going to do offshore wind, you're like, who the, who the hell is Eversource? If you don't live in the, the, the northeast part of the United States, you don't know who they are. If you live up there like you do, you understand they're a big utility. They do a lot of things. They, they are part of the infrastructure up there that supports that whole New England coast. Um, but interestingly enough, like Eversource has, they never had any business being an offshore wind. They don't know anything about it. They've never done anything with it. And so my thought, and again, we talked about this software, my, my opinion was, Cool for them to be involved in it. I think the state legislatures, of course, want their local people to be involved and be a stakeholder with what's going on in that offshore wind play. But they, sh in my opinion, they shouldn't have put that much money into it. They shouldn't have been a 50% holder with, with Orsted. They got a good partner. Orsted, of course, great partner. Um, they know offshore wind. They're, they're the originators. They've been doing it for a long time. So they did, they did good there. But... Uh, it's it's too risky. It's too much out there, in in my opinion. Uh, again, take it for whatever you want. But the change over here going to Global Infrastructure Partners now. Global Infrastructure Partners, like you said, uh, part of BlackRock now. BlackRock through I think there was there was a large value there, twelve billion or something of that sort. Yeah, it was a big number. Yeah, yeah, and and so that Larry Fink, of course, the CEO at BlackRock, is saying, hey, that infrastructure investments are the future of some of these large, large, uh, I guess, large investments, right? So people knowing that energy is going to be, the people with the big, with the big deep pockets, knowing that energy infrastructure and infrastructure in general is going to be uh, something that we're going to have to bet on in the future. Now they're taking this spot. So they're sliding in on the opposite side of uh, Orsted, Eversource is moving out. Um, look to see a lot more of these things start to happen with big money, deep pockets is the way I see it. And Eversource is also discussing the sale of its water distribution business as to make up some of the deficit here. So this has been a painful exercise for Eversource. And as we have seen from other uh, electricity utilities in the United States, uh, they're trying to cover their losses and it makes you wonder what's going to happen going forward. Are you going to see utilities uh, step into these offshore projects or or are they going to leave them to the uh, European companies that can manage them, or in this case, Canadian companies that may be able to manage them? Yeah, I know we talk about this regularly too, right? It's frustrating that there isn't more American involvement in offshore wind. You see all these big offshore wind, offshore wind, offshore. Every company besides basically Dominion is from overseas. They're from Europe. They're, they're somewhere that's not here. And I know that frustrates people. It frustrates me, right? I want to see these things happen. But you also have to understand that um, from an a, uh, offshore uh, marine environment infrastructure, that's not something that we normally do in the U.S. I mean, the existing offshore infrastructure in the U.S., which a lot of people don't know that much about, is mostly all Gulf of Mexico offshore oil and gas. So there's platforms down there. There's, there's those things as well. Those are a completely different. Um, 
how would you say it? They're a completely different engineering task, right? Most of those are one-offs. A lot of them are, there's, there's some in shallow water with jacket foundations, but it's like you're building one. You build that jacket. It's massively custom. It's all custom built. It's floated out there, suction piled in, uh, wells are drilled, things work. Um, and then there's the deep water stuff, right? There's things in the Gulf of Mexico that are out in three, 4,000 feet of water uh, pumping, pumping oil. Uh, so we have some of that infrastructure, but not like offshore wind. It's a completely different animal. So while it is frustrating to not see American companies involved, um, we need that expertise from the people that have done it. So I think I, I would like to see some people, uh, tagging along, but I'd like to see them at five and 10% and have a couple people sitting within the company to learn, uh, and grow. But taking a 50% stake, uh, that was a risky, uh, risky gig from the beginning. Yeah, I'm not sure. This all happened pre-inflation, right? <laughs> That's what happened. And, and at the time, I'm sure all the economics made sense. And, but the, the economy has changed so much in the last couple of years, it's hard to really blame them. It, it, it was like a one in a hundred year event, really. It's uh, tough, you know, and, and I think the utilities, they have to try to find a way to fight them. To bring themselves out of this hole, but I I think, right? I think a lot of U.S. utilities are not going to get knee deep into these projects from here on out. They're going to be the five or ten percent range just to cover their cover their downside. Makes sense. Even uh, global infrastructure partners, like I said, in this deal, uh, there is some caveats to make sure that you know the economy doesn't start doing crazy stuff again, and or they have the ability to to make a move. The Bureau of Ocean Energy Management has been holding some public meetings to discuss uh, some offshore sites off the coast of essentially New Jersey, and they ran into some opposition from fishermen and uh, who are arguing against putting some wind turbines where the, some of their fishing grounds are. And it really has to, to do with the cables. I don't think they're too concerned about where the turbines are placed so much as like, where are the cables? Because a lot of fishing involves trolling the bottom of the ocean to, to capture the, the sea life they're trying to go get. Now, this has caused a, a lot of issues for a BOEM because the, when they had cited these projects, they didn't think they're going to receive a lot of feedback on the fishing locations that they, or they didn't think the objections would be as vocal as they are. But it, as we have seen in the press more recently, there's still a lot of effort to push back on, on the East Coast, at least, on these fishing areas. And I've seen some more recently on the, on the West Coast, Oregon, California, same sort of thing. Uh, it, it does seem like the, the BOEM is slowing down on its, in its project development and locating these, these sites based on feedback and maybe getting a little more input from uh, local businesses like fishermen uh, to make sure they're sited in the right place. I, Again, there's, there's going to be a big push to try to put some sites out in the water, Joel. Are, are these going to take longer? And if they do take longer to get sited out, is it going to be less uh, price paid for them because of the potential downside? Well, I think the, if you roll it back to the beginning of an idea here, the idea is that we're using the ocean for a new purpose. Change is hard. Change is difficult. Change, you have to, in, you have to involve a lot of people to make sure you do it right. So right now we're talking about stakeholder management. Basically, everybody wants to use the, these pieces of ocean for something, right? We want to use them for offshore wind. We want to use them for navigation. We want to use them for fishing. So you have to figure out how to work together. And whenever you have a community such as like the fishermen have basically had the run of this area forever. They haven't had to deal with anybody out there 
using it in a heavily commercial activity, right? So they've been able to do what they want, right? And now um, you're going to add in another stakeholder out there where, you know, it may impact the fishermen's uh, abilities or so they're, they're putting forth. It, it will impact their ability to, you know, make their catch or, or do their things because there's going to be exclusion zones. You can't go drag a, <laughs> you can't go drag a net right next to a, a platform or something like that. Like you get caught up, that wouldn't be good. Other than that, you have to think about the subsea infrastructure, right? So sometimes, depending on where you are in the world or what the regulations are, if you're going to have an export cable coming from a wind farm to shore, sometimes it's buried. Sometimes it's trenched in. They have a trenching machine. They're pretty cool. They look like tanks that basically go on the bottom and they drive on tracks on the bottom of the ocean floor and they have water jets and they create a channel and bury the cable. Um, but also with those, you have rock dumps that may go on top of them mattresses there's all kinds of different things depending on the geotechnics of the subsea at that point but either way that once was a nice smooth clean ocean floor with nothing on it that the bottom trawlers were able to just basically drag uh with nets now they can't do that anymore so there's going to be definitely issues there um with you know involving more stakeholders the fishermen i i can completely understand why they're a bit up in arms. It messes up their, uh, you know, it's, it'd be like if someone came to you, Alan, and said, you can't be, you can't be a lightning engineer anymore. You have to figure out a way to be, uh, I don't know, electrical engineer or a mechanical engineer or something. You know what I mean? You like, they're taking away, <laughs> yeah, taking away your livelihood is what they're doing. Right. So uh, uh, understandably up in arms, I get it. Um, but for the, the, the greater, I can say this easily sitting in my chair, right? I'm not, this doesn't affect me as much, but for the greater good, there needs to be uh, some give and take if we want to have offshore wind in this green energy transition. I don't think the fishermen had a, a lot to worry about at the moment because it's not going to be a lot of action in their area. Yeah, not the way it's going right now. Yeah, there, I mean, there's there's also takes where, say, in areas, I know they, they've done some, some there's, there's a website that has some really cool subsea footage of Block Island. And the fishing and wildlife around those platforms. So, so if you had a fishing area, and then all of a sudden there's a bunch of structure in it. If you're a fisherman, fish go to structure. Bait fish go to structure. So maybe the fishing grounds were here, uh, and now all those fish may migrate right into that wind farm to hide out a little bit, and then it makes your fishing not as good too. That could happen. Lightning is an act of God, but lightning damage is not. Actually, it's very predictable and very preventable. Strike Tape is a lightning protection system upgrade for wind turbines made by WeatherGuard. It dramatically improves the effectiveness of the factory LPS so you can stop worrying about lightning damage. Visit weatherguardwind.com to learn more, read a case study, and schedule a call today. Uh, over in the UK, the uh, Docker Bank Offshore Wind Farm project is behind schedule and by a lot. So there, you know there's three phases to Docker Bank. We're talking about Docker Bank A, really, which is the first phase here. Developer SSC has warned that operations may not commence until 2025, and, and they were really scheduled to begin the end of this year. Uh, and it's all due to availability issues, supply chain delays, uh, weather, of course, and then uh, access to ships, what it sounds like. So only seven of the 95 Halliate X 13 megawatt turbines have been installed uh, since the first turbine came online late last year. Uh, the 3.6 gigawatt Dogger Bank project, when it's all complete, will be the world's largest offshore wind farm uh, because it has three phases, each of 1.2 gigawatts. And that, that's, a, that's a massive wind farm. 
So Joel, it does seem like they're really going to run into trouble here with ships, uh, just because if they get delayed, the ships have someplace else to be. So this project will drag on. And I, I don't know if there's a really a way to deal with that at the moment besides hope for better weather. Yeah, you want to hope for better weather. And I guess it's it, when you're talking operations, whether it's construction or I don't know, you're going to go to a site and paint someone's house. It doesn't really matter. Usually the first section of that goes slower, right? You're everybody's, the crew's kind of melding, meshing, getting together, and you're, under, you're understanding logistics and things, how they work and hook up faster. So it's completely understandable that you'd have, uh, you know, a slow start to a project that happens a lot. That's always something project managers in construction are like, how can we alleviate this, these headaches at the beginning? Um, however, only seven of those 95 turbines installed since December start. It's mid-February now. It's been, you know, 10, 12 weeks. That's not good. That's really slow. Uh, and it's mostly chalked up to weather, right? I mean, North Sea, win wintertime, Dogger Bank, it's not, that's nasty. Uh, so you can understand that now, the problems that you're running into right now, of course, vessels are on contract. That's how it works. You get a set amount of days, you pay for those days. Uh, you may have some squeeze room for overrun, but a lot of times, you know, if you have a vessel from, you know, Boscalis, someone, if you have that vessel until June 1st, you might be able to get it until June 15th, but after June 15th, Company XYZ is going to be screaming for it because they paid a contract for it to be over there. Um, so there is a little bit of uh, the term is um, coopetition. If you've ever heard of that, it's kind of like uh, when to when to partner with your with your competition um, of these conversations that are going to be happening in the background for sure at the vessel. The vessel companies are licking their chops. Either way, they're getting paid. Right, they're loving it. Uh, but we do know that there's a lot of wind farms being installed, uh, all over the North sea. We've got some coming here in the States. We got, there's all over the world, Taiwan screaming for ships. They're building some new ones in the APAC region right now. Uh, the problem you have here with some of these, if you're like, Hey, we'll move another one in, we'll move another one out. This, the fittings and the structures and, uh, how each vessel handles each type of say monopile or transition piece or the rigging for the crane or the the measurement systems for the verticality of the monopile when it's being driven or the, the specific ROV, um, you know, intervention tools that need to be used sub C to hook things up. Those are usually specific to one RFP, to one, uh, wind farm, to one construction site, the same thing in, in oil and gas. So if you're going to develop a sub C oil field, you spec out every single bit of what's on each vessel, the tools, the instruments, the kit, the all the everything that interacts with anything that goes off sub C has to be custom built. Um, and so you can't really just like if you're on a Seaway 7 vessel installing these things, you can't really just switch over to a Deme vessel the next day when they move out. It doesn't work like that. It's not like switching out a Chevy truck and a Ford truck to go to a wind site on shore. It doesn't that's not how it goes. Um, so I guess the way what we have to hope is the we get some really good weather for. For the teams out at Dogger Bank, and they start they start ginning, they start uh, groove, moving and grooving and getting some things installed. Um, otherwise, there will be some delays. It is what it is. When this podcast releases, Joel, we will be in sunny San Diego at ACPOMNS, and there looks like it's going to be a pretty big crowd there. Just checking on LinkedIn, I I know everybody's getting ready for the 2024 repair season. There's a lot of activity and 
2023 was a pretty high damage year from what I could tell. Uh, and I, I, I expect uh, also Blades, which is happening uh, while this podcast releases down in Austin, Texas, is going to be widely attended and it seems to be gaining traction even over in Europe. When I was just over in Europe and people from there were going to be attending Blades. So there's going to be a lot of activity. It's, it's sort of conference season at the moment. Yeah, it's starting up here in the States for sure. So I'm in Austin right now. Right now it's, what day is it today? It's Wednesday. So it's uh, Valentine's Day. So I've been talking all week, last week about, you know, clients, friends, colleagues, um, people to meet up with, uh, talk blade problems, talk lightning problems um, for the next few weeks. So my schedule is crazy. It's, I'm, we, it starts Sunday night, people flying in. I'll go grab a couple friends from the airport. Um, have some blade conversations for Monday and Tuesday, of course, uh, blades USA is a great event. Uh, a lot of good engineers there, a lot of good topics. Um, and you're, you're involving the engineers and the stakeholders at the operator level at the, at, you know, the people who own the wind farms. And then also the, a lot of the blade repair companies are there and some of the, you know, retrofit companies and stuff are in town for that. So it's a lot of like the correct gra grab of stakeholders around blades are there uh and then that wednesday morning i've had a couple of jokes a couple of conversations the last few days those planes that are leaving austin heading to san diego they're going to be a captive audience that's going to be all people coming you know two and a half three hour flight uh everybody coming from blades going to uh the operations maintenance and safety conference um annoying that they're in the same week to be honest with you but they were smart enough to put one on monday tuesday and i say they because it's acp and wind power monthly or Haymarket or whatever and they're two separate organizations but blades is monday tuesday and we have uh oms is wednesday afternoon thursday friday so uh, i know we have uh booths at both of them so we're going to be taking a lot of meetings talking to a lot of people doing a lot of podcasts recording which is always great uh but oms yeah it's that's always a good one to kind of kick off the season we're in february here most people have their tenders uh, kind of lined out and if they don't or if they need a little bit of backfill with some capacity for some blade teams or or you know up tower teams gearbox teams they're they're gonna sort it out here shortly so it's a good time to be good but good time to be out in the market talking with people um oms is uh always nice in san diego there but we did hear there might be some rain so pack a rain jacket yeah it looks like it's gonna rain uh, we're going to have recordings with a number of companies that are going to be at ONMS. And if obviously, if you you want to talk to us about being on the podcast, that's a good place to connect with us right on the OMS floor. One of the things I'm noticing this year too, Joel, is that there's just a lot more uh, of the operators getting involved in the in the blade repair and that full service agreements are not <laughs> as favorable as they once were. So the activity on the engineering side seems to be much more active. And maybe that's just coming out of the inflationary period and everybody's getting going, the comedy's picking up a little bit, but it does seem to me the, the amount of engineering that's going on on the blade side is, is at a peak. I haven't seen it this active in a couple of years. Yeah, I think the other side of it is, is in the United States, of course, our fleet is starting to mature, right? We had a lot of, a lot of installations that, you know, GE-15s went crazy in 2011, 12, 13, all this stuff. So they're now coming 10 years. So if you had an FSA that was a five or a 10 year, um, they're starting to, hey, are they going to renew the FSA or take it on themselves? Well, the data points to, you might be better off taking your operations on yourself or having an ISP help you out. So a lot of that activity for sure, Alan. 
And booking booking a independent service provider may be hard at this point. <laughs> You're a little late. You're late in here. Yeah, and also technicians that are looking for positions this this summer. Uh, that's a good place to be, right? Uh, if you're out in San Diego, definitely stop by and, and drop off a resume. Or if you're at, at Blades, drop off a resume. Get involved. I've, I've seen a lot more technician activity and people reaching out, like, where can I find a position for the year? There's a lot of job sites, everybody. Get on LinkedIn. Connect up with those companies via LinkedIn. Get on their websites. Go to the career pages. Look there uh, because there's a lot of opportunities at the moment. And it, it's one of the fastest growing jobs in America, being a wind turbine technician. Get get going because it's going to be a good season. Been involved in quite a few different industries and trade shows and whatnot, and I don't think there's one that I've been around that's quite like OMS. OMS, of course, Operations Maintenance Safety. So it's very much focused on the operations in the field. And to be honest with you, if you're looking to be a blade tech or an up tower tech and you haven't inked what your contract's going to be like or working for a specific company this year, it might be worth hopping on a plane to San Diego. And walking that floor and, and handing out your resumes at that show because there's going to be a lot of people there. Uh, a little bit different this year. Usually it's at Coronado right down on the beach. Uh, and the actual exhibition, it's not that good, to be honest with you. American Clean Power, I'll say that. Uh, when you had it in the tents out on the lawn, not the best. But this year it is in a hotel in a center with an actual exhibition floor. There's going to be over a hundred people exhibiting. Um, so a lot of things in the wind industry moving at uh, OMS for sure. All right. British engineer, Andrew Gerard and Danish uh, citizen, Henrik Stiestal were announced as the 2024 winners of the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering for their pioneering work, advancing wind turbine design and deployment. The over 40 year careers for both of those gentlemen uh, the laureates made critical innovations now used in most modern high-capacity wind turbines, including some of the world's largest wind turbines. Uh, their groundbreaking work has enabled widespread adoption of wind power around the world. And Her Royal Highness Princess Anne attended the ceremony at London's Science Museum, which had to be cool. Come on, Joel. That's cool. And, and praised the role of engineering in society. And it, so if you're not familiar with the Queen Elizabeth Prize, it's there to promote excellence and visionaries in engineering, inspiring young people to consider it as a career. So this is a really fascinating prize. I like it. It's sort of like the Nobel Peace Prize for engineering sort of thing. <laughs> right? Yeah. And it does come with uh, some cash award, right? Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a 1 million pound. Wow. Yeah. 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 It's big time. Unlike the Nobel Peace Prize, which is basically money off of dynamite, I hope this money comes out of the royal family's pockets because they can stand to lose a little bit. Either way, I, I think that anybody in the wind industry, if you don't know who Andrew Garrard or Henrik Stiesdahl are, please Google them the next time you get a chance and you'll see historic uh, websites devoted to the things that they have done. There's so much information about there, like what you see for the modern day wind turbine, 450,000 of them in the world right now, plus offshore, onshore. These two guys were a huge part of everything that you see today. So if you're a technician, if you're a developer, if you're anybody in the wind industry, you owe it to these two, uh, these two uh, men that are, we'll call them like a royalty, wind royalty, maybe, um, that, have, that have come on and done all these things. So take a peek at it. Do, you, do yourself a favor. Next time you're sitting around on the couch or something, pull your phone out and Google their names and you'll see some really cool stuff. Uh, and. Uh, Congrats to the two of them, um, and uh, and thank you 
for for the work that you put in uh, in your engineering minds uh, to get us to the point we're at right now. They have to be amazed at the rapid deployment of wind, right? That, that we're now talking about twenty megawatt machines <laughs> when they first started their kilowatt machines. It, it there has been a rapid growth in that in that industry. I do, I think timing is everything, and so right time, right place, right part of part of it. That's true, but getting the engineering right was key early on and. Uh, if you do look at some of the early inventions in wind, you're like, ooh, pretty sketchy. But uh, we've got we've gotten through that period, and it there is a I I do think these prizes help raise awareness about uh, the careers you can have in engineering. And uh, the, if you're a high school graduate or going into college, it's such a tough time to try to figure out what you want to go do. Engineering is one of those tough trails, and it's nice that you can see some hardworking engineers be rewarded for their efforts because, uh, yeah, engineering's not easy, right? And uh, a lot of people are involved in a lot of these wind projects that you never hear of, but they should be committed also. You know, there's, in the United States, we talk about the fact that there's not a DTU. There's not a TU Delft. We don't have a university dedicated to wind, right? And at the university level, it's, uh, there is actually reports out lately that I've read, sad for me, uh, that says that engineering as a major is starting to decline in the United States. A lot, a lot more people taking, I don't want to say this, I don't want to make anybody angry, but a lot more people taking a little bit easier paths through university to get degrees. Uh, engineering is one of the toughest things that you can really do there. Uh, but you can see that engineering in general shapes our society. If you look around you, everything that you touch, feel every day is designed by someone that is an engineer, right? Now, the majority of big things that happen are designed by engineers. They're the ones that make, make progress. So we need more of them out there. So we haven't had a wind farm of the week in quite a while, but we want to get back into that, of course. So the wind farm of the week this week is K-Wind. Southern Power uh, owns K-Wind. It's in K County, Oklahoma. The 299 megawatt facility with 130 Siemens 2.3 80 meter tall towers. Um, the facility was built with a $400 million construction loan. And the uh, project was delivered back in 2015. So power gets sold into Kansas and also Oklahoma under 20-year PPAs. The thing I want to touch about this wind farm, if you Google it, you'll find out that in 2017, the team at K-Wind uh, was recognized for its exceptional achievement in operations and management at the Wind O&M Conference in Dallas. So the project team won the wind farm team or technician of the year award back in 2017. Uh, and they beat out over 100 entries. So this is, uh, at that point in time, Apex was uh, a part of it as well. Uh, but the Southern Power Apex team there at K-Wind doing a lot of fantastic things with a bunch of turbines that were built in the United States, right? They were built at the Siemens facility in Hutchinson, Kansas, and the blades were made in, uh, or the nacelles were, and the blades were produced at uh, Fort Madison, Iowa. So uh, K-Wind, you are the wind farm of the week. That's going to do it for this week's Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Thanks for listening. And please give us a five-star rating on your podcast platform and subscribe in the show notes below to Uptime Tech News, our weekly newsletter. And check out Rosemary's YouTube channel, Engineering with Rosie. And we'll see you here next week on the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. <laughs>